0: Alright, we're going to be in Genesis 1. You can turn there and probably if you want to, you can follow along. We're going to be in four different sections. Genesis 1, Psalm 36. I'm just going to look at one verse from Psalm 36 and sort of briefly comment on it. Um, so you don't have to necessarily turn there, but uh, you'll want to be in Genesis 1 for sure. And then uh, we're also going to look at Ecclesiastes briefly, chapter 3 and Mark 16, 15. Preach the gospel to the whole of creation, that passage. So, I'm going to make those connections for us today. So, we're going to talk about culture. This is uh, the tenth and final message in our foundation series. So, let's start, and I'm just going to read those texts Genesis 1, these are the words of God. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea. And over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. And Psalm 36, 9 says this. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. And Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 10. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And then Mark sixteen fifteen. And Jesus said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, we come before you now looking to your word for guidance. And uh, Father, we have assembled here as your culture makers, desiring to see Christianity flourish in our own lives, in the lives of our families, our churches, and of course the culture around us. Uh, Father, we we confess that we are an unrighteous culture that's bent on self-destruction and death. Help us to repent and reform Grant us regeneration and reconstruction, and in that order. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, it's definitely good to be back after a couple of weeks of traveling and preaching, and it was a nice break, but we're, we're happy to be back. And in God's grace, we're going to be moving into our home in a couple of weeks, so we're ready for that transition. Uh, it's been an interesting few months of living in, in what seems to feel like disarray. I don't know where half my stuff is. Well, I do know, but I don't have access to it. It's just a weird feeling, but God's been good to us, that's for sure. Um, So this morning we're gonna wrap up this series uh, talking about culture. And from the very outset of the series, if you recall that I I basically explained that I wanted to talk about doctrine vis-a-vis practice, doctrine in relation to practice or theology in relation to every area of life, all everyday life. And far too many people, they want doctrine itself to be a sort of intellectual enterprise and only an intellectual enterprise. Oh, I don't do doctrine, that's for smart people. And as R.C. Sproul has famously said, everyone's a theologian, some are just worse than others. Uh, I'm paraphrasing him there. So we have a situation where doctrine tends to be something that people just don't, they dismiss. They don't feel like it's that important, and that's just for the seminaries, that's just for the pastors. But in reality, doctrine does apply to every single area of life. And so, as I've demonstrated, theology, properly properly done, is supposed to suffuse and effectuate a new way of living. So our theology should drive how we live. And you know, yesterday at the Pride event, there's a lot of theological beliefs that are driving the way that they're behaving. Um, everyone is driven by some sort of, of theological conviction, some sort of doctrinal conviction. So doctrine will always, 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 in every way, tell us how we're supposed to live. So proper doctrine then gives rise to how we think, it gives rise to how we live, and what we do with the future. So if we're going to see the advancement of Christendom, we simply must spend our time taking these doctrines and seeing them implemented, making sure we're grasping them. And we also have to start with ourselves. We need to start here. Uh, Reconstruction, reformation starts inside of you first. It starts with you repenting of sin. It starts with you growing in maturity. It starts with you Um, perhaps leading your family, discipling your children. It always starts with you. Where does regeneration happen? It's in the heart. Regeneration starts there. So, for example, um, when we talked about the triune God, I explained how the very person of God, God himself, his being, his ontology, his nature, his essence, is the foundation for all knowledge and understanding. So we only know... This is part of the argument I got into yesterday with a young lady. I Assuming she was a young lady and she wanted to be called as such. Um, I, I, you never know those, those types of places, but lots of confusion. And I was trying to explain that you don't have a justification for knowledge apart from God. But how do you know? Because I'm not working with the same paradigm as you. I'm not saying abortion is murder and, and homosexuality is a sin because I don't like it. My standard is not me. Your standard is you, but that's not. I'm not playing that game. And just trying to help people wrap their minds around, no, we owe our everything to God and his knowledge and his word. That's where we get it. So the ancient philosophers, you think of Socrates and, and Plato and Aristotle, each a disciple of the other one, uh, down the line, all of them wrestled with this concept of being who we are and then becoming what we're supposed to do. They all wrestled with it. And... No doubt those people, those men, said some things that were very true. They said some things that were very wrong as well. And that's sometimes how it is because they're made in the image of God. But for them, a lot of their thinking was not really grounded in Yahweh, the true God of the Bible, who has revealed, revealed himself, the God who is truly there and who gives rise to meaning and intelligence and intelligibility. So indeed, we can learn a lot about the world, through basic empiricism, that is how we sense things and how we know things, uh, we can learn a lot about that. We know what foods we like. um, We know what temperature feels like. We're sensing the world all the time through our eyes and our ears and our noses and our mouths and and our intuition. We can know things that way. We, We know that basketballs are round. We know that summer weather can be very hot. We know those things. But to justify that knowledge, we need to have a basis for it. And that basis, according to Christianity, is the triune God. That's the basis. So I've sort of emphasized this through the entire series, but basically, quite literally, we depend on God for everything. And we should act that way because it's true. In him, we live and move and have our being. That God is important to all knowledge, righteousness, and justice is to understate things. We simply must have God in order to make sense of everything and anything. Nothing else is intelligible, which is what we saw yesterday in the, uh, what I like to call the, the arrogance parade <laughs> um, in DC. Now, my intention for the series then has been to give you basic doctrines so that we can move into the future of Christendom. And when I phrase it like that, I do mean that we need to know that there is a future. There is a future of Christendom. Uh, despite all appearances, don't, don't man looks at the outward, right? God looks at the in, inside, the heart. We need to know that despite all appearances, despite the insanity that's been the last 18 months of our existence in this nation, with lockdowns and, and chaos and those types of things despite all appearances there is a future of christendom christ is king so today culture what is what is it what isn't it <laughs> that's the thing i want to cover and understand and make sure we have a refined view of it so let's look at quickly those texts i covered i'm going to make just some brief comments and go from there genesis 1. foundationally speaking genesis 1 the dominion charter when god told adam and eve to be fruitful and multiply to have dominion over the earth and all the animals and everything foundationally speaking that charter that covenant is a cult, inherently a culture-making covenant when god said that to adam he said build culture to have dominion to work and keep the garden to be fruitful and multiply have babies Teach them how to serve Christ, those types of things, subduing the earth. When he did that, he was explaining to Adam that the world was his for the taking. The world, that's why you go to a pride event. The dictionary is ours. You don't get to take pride. No one, they didn't choose humility, ironically. We are the humility movement. They didn't choose that. They chose pride. Why? Because any idol. Uh, that wants to be dethroning God is an idol that has to do it in an arrogant manner It has to it's just inherently built into the feature. So this word culture comes from the Latin word cultura Which speaks of the cultivation of the land quite literally culture means the tilling of the crops uh, That's how the ancients would have understood it the they, they it sort of goes back to the idea if you think about agriculture or horticulture Um, All of it's connected in a lot of ways to what we see in the created order around us. We're cultivating the land. We're building, we're making, we're sustaining life, um, dealing with animals. I mean, we're in a barn. I mean, this doesn't get any more culture than that. Um, Quite literally, tilling the crops is what it means. So finding himself at the Garden Mount of Eden, and, and Eden was a mountain, by the way. That's what Ezekiel tells us. But finding himself there, Adam was to make shovels. Adam was to learn how to make plows and shears for trimming bushes and weeds and all those types of things. Um, he was supposed to develop the, you know, the, the bush hog, right? They're, you're supposed to build these things to cultivate, to make the land beautiful and all of that. But he was supposed to cut down trees, build things, plant trees, cultivate the land, plowing fields in order to beautify the earth. And to expand his energy, his influence, the influence of Eden's social and artistic ordering. Now, with Eve by his side, Eve was created as a helpmeet. Um, that doesn't mean that the, the the woman was less important or less made in the image of God. Um, but quite literally, together they're supposed to take take dominion. They've both been charged with this task. The two were to flourish. They were to have children. They were to build homes, they were to advance technology, and they were to do it all while walking alongside the Lord. In the cool of the day, God came, right? They were to walk with with God. And we talked about that when we covered the doctrine of man, but it's worth repeating real quickly, though, that man is called to work and keep the world, to labor, to expend his energy, and enjoy the fruit of all of his cultural endeavors, so it's good to chop down some wood, build a fire, have a meal, put your feet up, and just enjoy it. That is a God-glorifying task. So that's basic What basic to what it means to be made in the image of God, is to be a culture maker. Culture, I have to emphasize, is a theonomic and theocratic pursuit. Culture is to be built in terms of God's law and God's rule, theonomic and theocratic pursuits. That is cultivating the land, building civilization, maturing in justice and righteousness and so on is all to be done in terms of God and his word. So culture, true Christian culture, is inescapably religious because it's inescapably covenantal. As God's servants and rulers, uh, we are, remember, subordinate. We have a subordinate authority So fathers and mothers, you have a certain authority, but all authority and human authority is always on a leash. God's the only one that has unending authority. So we all have a subordinate authority. But we're called to take the land. We're called to create. Adam and Eve were covenantally bound to God. They were expected to build culture in obedience to God and his law word. So more on that later. Now, Psalm 36, 9. This is an interesting verse, Psalm 36, 9. It says, for with you is the fountain of life. With you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. I put this verse here simply to point out that only by being oriented and anchored to God and his word are we then able to see culture and the world around us. In your light do we see light. Okay? If, you're not, if you're trying to see the world apart from God's re- revealed light, you're not seeing. You, you're blinded. You're, you're groping around in the dark. That's why Aristotle himself was groping around in the dark. Life itself stems from God because he is the author. So the light of his law and very being, the light of who he is, illuminates for us Both our responsibilities, our cultural responsibilities, and our ethical responsibilities. So kids, your task is to obey your parents. The Bible tells you to do that, right? But your parents also don't, they're not God. (laughs) They're not God. So their job is to teach you what God demands. They're trying to teach you what God expects, how you're supposed to act, how you're supposed to function, who you're supposed to be when you grow up as someone made in his image. So we see... Because God turns the light on in our hearts and minds through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm sort of just tracing a theme in scripture here. So Ecclesiastes 3 is next. And we've preached on this a few years ago, so you can look at at that if you want to. But all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, this is the, the main subject, the preacher is King Solomon. And the preacher explains that life in God's world, he's, he's looking around at everything. He Remember, he had everything at his disposal. He's a wise man. He was rich. He had tons of money in the bank. He owned a lot of Bitcoin, probably. And he also had a lot of animals. He had everything you could ever want. And he, he realized, well, actually, just because you have everything doesn't mean you're happy. A lot of people pursue that. They think it'll replace their happiness in God by pursuing various things, but it, it doesn't it doesn't actually work now he's not condemning the pursuit of wealth for the sake of the kingdom but he is condemning you trying to do it apart from god so the preacher looks around at life in god's world he sees that it's truly joyous there's a lot to take pleasure in so mow your lawn and be done and just enjoy it it smells good and you just did some 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 labor and work and it looks nice right enjoy that but it's not to be flipped on its head and turned into idolatry That's what he's warning. Here we learn that God has made the world in order to keep us busy with beauty. God has made the world in order to keep us busy with beauty. Eternity was placed in our hearts, and because we are fallen, we don't fully understand the mind of God. We don't fully understand. But that's not the same thing as saying that we can know nothing about God. Indeed, we can know things about God. We know because he has revealed himself to us. And one thing that we learn from him is that being joyful and doing good while here on this remarkable earth is a virtuous and noble goal. It's a great thing to do good. So the preacher assumes that we will toil, we're going to work, and taking pleasure in it by eating and drinking the fruit of that toil is indeed a glorious gift from God, something we should embrace. But joy has its boundaries. Joy has its boundaries. True joy. And what a shame if we fail to go and see the property markers. Have joy in the Lord. Enjoy the fruit of your labor. But don't turn it into idolatry when it stops. When you stop laboring for the kingdom. When you stop uh, being involved in those sort of pursuits because you're just sort of kicking back and relaxing. That's the danger. Now, Mark 6.15. Excuse me, 16.15. Jesus said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation my pastor growing up said he used to practice his sermons out in the cow pasture and he would preach to the cows and uh, i always laughed i've never done that i don't intend to i don't have any cows to preach at anyway but it's interesting though this idea of preaching the gospel to the whole of creation he didn't say every man woman and child he said the whole of creation which there's a reason for that, I think. So I'm including this text for a very important reason, namely because of its connection to the rest of the Bible. When Jesus said to go into the world, remember, that's the same thing that Adam was told. God told Adam to go into the world. Jesus is saying the same thing as the second Adam. He's recapitulating that. He says go into the world and he's told them to go with the message of the gospel and the message of the gospel is the tip of the spear. When when it's thrusted into the world, the gospel pierces the defunct cultures of man and brings with it the rest of the spear, that is, the shaft, the rest of the spear, the handle. That's Christian culture. When the gospel goes somewhere, Christian culture comes with it. The Christian worldview comes right behind it. So wherever the gospel goes, the kingdom of God and the culture it produces goes with it. The whole of creation, Jesus says, is to have the gospel preached to it. That includes those at a pride parade. The whole of the gospel, all of Christ for all of life, it's supposed to go into the world. And when we piece this together with what I've already said, we find that gospel preaching produces gospel culture. Gospel preaching produces gospel culture. And gospel culture finds its appointed consummation in every single area of life. So the... the, it's, I don't know how else to say it other than the gospel is quite literally supposed to get into everything. Politics, lockdown um, orders. It's supposed to get into everything. Race relations, every single thing, the gospel is supposed to go to it. So in the Christianizing of the entire world, that's the scope of the Great Commission. We are simply recognizing that the entire world belongs to Christ by virtue of his all-encompassing lordship so everything's his Uh, you might remember abraham kuyper he famously said there's not one square inch of this earth that christ doesn't cry out mine it's his so we're supposed to go into it and uh, john calvin interestingly he commented on this verse in his institutes of, of of the christian religion he said, no fixed limits are given them, but the whole world is assigned to be reduced under the obedience of Christ. Note that. The whole world is assigned to be reduced under the obedience of Christ. That by spreading the gospel as widely as they could, they might everywhere erect his kingdom. So the, the point is, our spreading of the gospel is part and parcel to our existence within the gospel itself. We're under Christ's authority, so we're seeking to bring everything else under Christ's authority because in principle it already is. He's already been established as king. So as obedience to Christ and his kingdom expands, Christian culture is left in its wake. The more people who are repenting and turning to Christ, the more Christian culture can be developed. So this is my way of saying it. Jesus is alive. What happens in the agora and the marketplace matters he's alive what happens out there matters so i want to consider this in more detail culture itself as we've seen is rooted in god's covenantal relationship to the world so because this is the case culture itself is intrinsically tied to the ethics of god's demands in his law word so you can't just build culture however you want it's tied to god and his expectations that's genesis 1 so we have to remember that all culture is supposed to be anchored in that. If it's not anchored in that, now we have a problem, and we have to deal with that. Henry, Henry Van, Til- Van Til's book, The Calvinistic Concept of Culture, he has argued that culture itself is the externalization of religion. Every culture that you see, cultural pursuits, that is the externalization of some sort of religious conviction. Um, quoting Tillich he, in his book, he said, "Religion is the substance of culture, and culture the form of religion." So the the point is, no one no one on this earth can escape the fact that man is appointed to live a religiously informed existence. All right. So we um, showed up there yesterday to to preach and evangelize and and. Uh, there were some other street preachers there, and, and um, I, I love them. I'm glad they're there. You know, it, it's, uh, somehow, I think Matt told me that some guy drove up from Atlanta, right? Was it you that told me that? And it was just hoping to meet other Christians. And I sort of chuckled. I'm like, yeah, good luck with that. You know, that's quite, quite, a, quite an interesting um, thing to do, to just sort of show up. There's probably a, well over 1,000 people there, I would think and uh, you're like the only Christian, you think. But there were some others there preaching, and, and, and one thing they said sort of bothered me, one of the preachers, and, and I, I love this, I love the brother, but we have some theological disagreements. But he, was, he kept saying, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. And um, that's sort of true, but we have to be more nuanced than that. The gospel really isn't Jesus loves you. The, the gospel is Christ died for your sin. You, you have sinned against him. And repentance is what gets you the, the faith. God gives you the faith, but repentance is the key. There's a lot of repentance that needs to happen in these in these pursuits. So we're there, and we're showing up, and we're acting like they're religiously neutral when we say things like that. And we shouldn't. No one is, no one can escape the fact that they are always driven by religious convictions. They just always are. Now, one might completely ignore and impugn the Lord of glory, but he is not permitted to be apathetic and neutral a lot of vile stuff yesterday but regardless though you're not you can try to impugn the lord of glory but don't act like you're not driven by religious impulses either you are as well so either he will love god and he will build culture from there or he will hate god and build culture from there but either way all culture is shaped by religious presuppositions and those religious presuppositions always stem from the hearts of men. So what are the prevailing notions of culture? This is a question I'd like to answer because no doubt you have experienced varying degrees, all of us, I'm sure of bad theology or no theology. Um, some Some of us were told don't get involved in culture, don't grow a business, don't, don't, don't run a business because you shouldn't be involved in that. You just need to show up to church. Um, some people believe that, unfortunately. But I'm gonna start by showing my cards and I think that what I'm saying I, I believe to be truly biblical approach to building culture. First, when we think of Calvinism in a reformed worldview of God's sovereignty, Calvinism or biblical theology itself maintains that the sovereignty and lordship of Christ places a totalitarian claim on the entirety of man's being and culture what he produces in other words god places a claim on you and your life and your family and everything that you do so the the biblical religion faith in christ is the anchor for all christians or it should be the anchor as we'll see shortly second biblical faith necessitates that men be anchored in the ethical patterns set forth by God whose image you bear. So these are this is just I'm sort of building a case here. So biblical faith necessitates this that you're you have to be anchored in Christ in order to obey him. Third, the lordship of Christ over all things coupled with an ethical grid through which we live means that all of our own lives and the lives of others that that all of that ought to permeate and thus conform the entire world of our existence so this is just a manner of saying what you have going on in your heart if if it's good and godly transforms you it ought to then spill out and affect your family it ought to spill out and affect this church body it ought to spill out and affect the rest of the world So it's sort of an outward, um, the vision of Ezekiel's temple, where the water rises and it fills the earth, is simply a vision of the Spirit of God and the people of God flowing out and filling the earth and subduing the earth. So all men, women, and children, kids, you too, are made in the image of God. And since you cannot shed this fact in search of some other integration point, the fact remains that all of our religious impulses and inclinations drive our cultural pursuits. So whether someone bows the knee to Christ or not his cultural activities will always and in every single case be driven by religious assumptions. Okay, If you assume that money is inherently evil and that you should never pursue it, you shouldn't build wealth for the kingdom, you shouldn't bless others with it if you are driven by that religious conviction, you're going to live a certain way. You might be fine with the status welfare program. You might be fine with certain things because you're driven by religious presuppositions. So this is another way of saying bad theology leads to brash cultures. Bad doctrine will always in every way produce oppressive cultures, which is why we need to restore the intellectual and religious foundations of Fauquier County. Now, so those are the biblical presuppositions but there are a lot of unbiblical ones as well. Perhaps one of the most frustrating ones, as this is something actually Jordan just wrote on recently, but one of the more frustrating ones is a two kingdom view of life, sometimes called radical two kingdoms. And uh, this has been propagated by the misguided folks of Westminster Seminary West in Escondido, California. Um, this view teaches that there's a common kingdom of man and a redemptive kingdom and neither shall the two meet. So the assumption is that the world, it can be chopped up into two sections. You have the secular and the sacred. You guys are familiar with those terms, right? There are secular things you do, but then there are sacred things you do. So that Lutheran, Lutherans are particularly adept at, at putting forth this erroneous view, and largely because Luther himself, the re- great reformer, he cared not to take the gospel out of the hearts of man and into the institutions of man. Luther was very inward focused on this. He focused on the heart and only the heart so that this law gospel division drives a wedge in culture and it shapes its view. Um, Much more can be said, but part of the reason that I think this view is so prevalent in Christianity is because of the work of a man named Thomas Aquinas. I referenced him a, a few sermons ago. Thomas Aquinas, he separated the world into two categories. A brilliant man, no doubt, but he separated the world into two categories heavily distinguishing the two and they are nature versus grace so the the, how many have heard of natural law natural law theory natural law theory stems from this aquinas's work he separates nature from from grace essentially says that there's a realm that is natural there's a realm that is finite there's a realm that is mortal and then there's the realm of grace the realm of grace is very spiritual. It's infinite and it's immortal. There, there is a realm that is secular, and then there's a realm that is sacred. And the sacred oftentimes is is um, synonymous with the activities of the institutional church. So, what you guys came here today, we sang some songs, we prayed, and we opened up God's word together. And many would say, "Well, that's actually that's sacred. That this this is we can't say God's house. It's not a house. It's a barn." It's God's barn. And this is sacred. This is holy ground, right? Kids are playing in the dirt. Um, they're playing in the holy ground. <laughs> and people view it like Sunday morning is sacred. Your Bible reading you do is sacred. Your prayer time is, is sacred. But everything else is, is secular. All, your job you go to tomorrow, mowing the lawn, um, going on vacation, going to the beach, all of those things are secular pursuits. So they say, you're banking, whatever you do. So the problem with this view is it's unbiblical. <laughs> there is only one sacred realm. There is only one sacred realm that encompasses every single area of life, and that realm is where Christ is king. Listen to Psalm 103:19. It says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. See, when we have a holistic view of the kingdom of God, we can then take a deep breath and we can start plunging into the world with the authority of Jesus himself. And we don't have to hesitate about getting involved in things like mathematics or writing or business or seafaring or trade. Um, This thing is bothering me. It's like stinging me. Um, Personal health, economics, philosophy, education, staff management, music, art, shipping, logistics, car repair, and homesteading. All right, we don't have to separate those things out. When we acknowledge the Lordship of Christ over all things, we find that there is no sacred-secular divide. There is no sacred-secular divide. Then and only then does Christianity transmit the instructions necessary for Christian culture-making. So it was the Protestant Reformation that basically revived this view, thanks to Calvin, thanks to the teaching that came out of Geneva. It was this biblically saturated world and life view that gave rise to the free market. It gave rise to true liberty and justice for all. So, I mean, you you need to know this, that all of Western civilization itself was built with this presupposition. Everywhere Christianity went in the world, this robust view of the kingdom went, and a free and thriving culture followed. Everywhere it touched, whether it's freedom of speech, whether it's the right to to defend yourself and the lives of others. All of these things are part of the Christian worldview. Now, the biggest threat we face outside of our own unfaithfulness is the threat of humanism. The influence of Darwin, the philosophy of, of, of Immanuel Kant, for example, was a reshaping of Western civilization and has thus, because of that, it's eroded the foundations of a true and biblical social order. Um, Some of you, let's just, I'm going to give you a quick history here. The Thirty Years' War, you might recall in Europe from 1618 to 1648, made Christianity seem super violent, and and thus the culture suffered because of it. It was a tragic time in history. Um, Men everywhere started to eventually embrace the Enlightenment's emphasis on rationalism, right? Who needs God? Who needs God and his authority when we can find other integrating principles? We can sort of be our own authority. We can live by our own influence. Voltaire and Newton and David Hume, John Locke, uh, men, men like even Thomas Jefferson, are prime examples of this enlightenment thinking. Following the enlightenment became this romanticism period of culture, just sort of a cultural shift here in the West. Um, the, the Rather than emphasizing the brain, that's what the uh, Enlightenment did, they began to emphasize the heart. So individual experience took primacy over your life. How you feel matters more than anything else. Matters of the heart became emphasized. Um, individual experience and subjectivism became this new working standard. So basically the Enlightenment believed that collective man is the standard of all things, But the romanticists, they came along and said, well actually the individual gets to decide for himself to be the standard. So we say, no, both of those are garbage because Christ is the standard. So following these European movements, you all recall the influence of Charles Darwin. Darwin came along and also with him sort of this theological liberalism took over. Um, Darwinism before it's a scientific method is a philosophy driven by rebellion against God. Long before Darwin was thinking about evolution, he was thinking about how do I bury God again? Sadly, many have embraced this naturalistic view of the world. A gentleman yesterday, I assumed to be a gentleman, I don't know for sure, dressed in a horrible outfit with a dog mask on and a collar, acting like a dog. And if you think you're from an animal, I guess you get to act like one as well that's the influence of Darwin. So once all the foundations were stripped away, uh, all these uh, faulty philosophies came in. It was only a matter of time before people started questioning the Bible. Is the Bible authoritative over every area of life? Ancient heresies were revived. The authority of Bible of the Bible was questioned. Once you question the authority of the Bible and Christ's authority, what comes in? Statism comes in, fills the void. So today's modern and postmodern philosopher kings have basically slipped off of the slope entirely and they've fallen into the cesspool of relativism and debauchery. Chris and I were talking on the way home yesterday. Man, if you didn't know anything about this movement called pride and you showed up, you would think, what a debauchery this was. The end of this all is death. Not the death of God, but the death of man. So if we're going to restore Christendom, we have to know these ideas. We have to be able to combat them. We have to stop playing the neutral game. Every single culture, every single worldview, every political ethic, every painting, every song that you hear, every philosophical meandering is always in every way animated by religious presuppositions. And when they come to you and they tell you, I'm not religious, don't believe them. So we need to stop with the Anabaptist separatist program. We have to ditch the sacred-secular divide and embrace the lordship of Christ and his gospel program of victory. We teach this a lot here, but sin has touched every area of life, so the gospel has to go there too. Far as the curse is found, we sing. In Christ, that's the gospel we preach. In Christ, man is restored To God, to be what he was always supposed to be, that is a creature of culture-making destined to serve God and destined to rule his world as a prophet and a priest and a king. Henry Van Til here says, uh, culture derives its meaning from man's faith in God. It is never an end in itself, but always a means of expressing one's religious faith. So if we can't get this straight, we will not have the bright future of Christendom. If we can start engaging people on this level and stop the pietist retreat from the world into the foothills of our own sacred liturgies and so on, then Christianity and the culture it gave the West, if we can stop that, it can be restored. But only if we're going to have the courage to do so. See, we have a cultural crisis today because we had a religious crisis yesterday. That's the logic. The pietist Christianity that you've come to know, the pietist Christianity that probably most of you in this barn have grown up with is going to go away eventually it's going to go away out of necessity and frankly i thank god for it the christianity i i grew up with when most of you grown up with it's gone it is gone you are no longer permitted to just exist in your own little enclave the state's coming for you if last year and in, in, in the beginning of this year is not any indication of that then i don't know what else is So we should thank God for burying our religious, or excuse me, our rebellious proclivities to shun culture. And so rather than avoid culture, we want a crossing ground people to build culture, to build culture. But we have to build it on the presuppositions we find in the Bible. We're not gonna build it by just doing things the way the world does it. Christ is Lord of all. Um, Just a couple more things kind of wrapping up. Uh, The big, big conversation today it's about Karl Marx. Everybody likes to talk about Marx and and cultural Marxism, which is an oxymoron. I don't suggest you use that phrase. Uh, it's it, it, people who use that don't know. They've never read Marx, and they don't know what he what he says. Marx was a materialist. Marx himself was a materialist, and we are in his worldview a product of evolutionary fizzing, and some are fizzing more than others, and some are smarter than others, and um, that's kind of the thing. Um, we know that we're not higher primates who somehow figured out how to make a screwdriver. <laughs> wow, that's impressive. We, we, we're not higher primates in that, fe- that, se- that sense of the word. You have kind of Marx in that camp, but you also have some of the German idealists. Hegel was one philosopher. He rejected, uh, they rejected the materialism of Darwin, like we just sort of came out of the ground and evolved he rejected all of that they did and they had adopted essentially a pantheistic view of the world which says that all is god and god is all so all of these ideas are swirling around right now in our culture people are embracing them left and right but we know that we're made in god's image so we preach that but as a creature serving the creator we know that we reflect his culture making creativity by using what he's given to make those things and third we do it all with the goal of honoring the lord and ordering the world in his terms. So we do culture because God says, Jesus is alive, what happens in the halls of Congress matters. Jesus is alive, what happens in the marketplace, the Agora, matters. Jesus is alive, so what happens in this county matters. It matters. So we need to cultivate, we need to show the world how to do better, to do all of that better than what they're doing right now. How to give better, how to serve, how to love, truly love, how to repent of sin, and be the people that God has called us to be. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and thank you for our time. Uh, we praise you that you are the God of culture. And we thank you that we've been grafted in and brought into this covenant so that we too could be culture makers. And and Father, there's so many erroneous views out there within the church and outside of the church. And Father, I pray that you would help us recover that. Help us to repent of, of seeing money and and things in a wrong way. Help us to see what you've given us uh, the right way so that we can steward it, so that we can honor you. Um, Father, we are a disheveled mess in this country. We are in desperate need of a revival and a repentance. So I pray, Father, that you would give it to us, that your spirit would um, cause us to repent so that we can store the foundations of Christendom. And we ask, Father, that you would do it on your terms and not on ours. In Christ's name, amen.